1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books and in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Otolia baird host of the channel, and today I have the great delight of talking to Doug Specht, editor of the new volume Mapping Crisis, Participation, Datification and Humanitarianism in the Age of Digital Mapping, published by University of London Press 2020. Doug, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: It's so exciting to have you here and to talk about what is an incredibly um, important volume and I think an incredibly powerful one that will, will resonate with um, many intellectual historians here and beyond. So we always like to begin by asking um, people to t- tell us a little bit about themselves. So could you explain, you know, who you are and really um, how your research and your background led to the volume coming about?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah. Um... I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Westminster, um, and I, I work in the School of Media and Communication there. Um, and uh, I mean, I really actually position myself as a geographer rather than a media scholar, but increasingly those two disciplines um, find themselves sharing um, sort of theories and uh, and uh, ideas quite a lot. Um, but my my sort of area of research is is around how maps are used as a form of communication so there's there's a lot of good synergy there um, and for many years i've been sort of working in latin america sub-saharan africa uh, looking at humanitarian and development issues and how data and mapping have been used to to shape those narratives and to shape people's lives um, and to, to change what's happening in the world um, and this, this book is really a sort of Bringing together of a lot of those those ideas.
1: Thank you, and it's it feels incredibly current, um, and it is incredibly current. And we're going to come to that, I think, in a little bit. But could you perhaps outline a little bit um, the motivations in producing this volume?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, you're you're right. The the volume is becoming um, more current by the day. Um, it it's, uh, wasn't. A, it, it was current, but it's even more current than when we started it. Um, so the the book has really been come about because the, there's an increased amount of sort of datification of people's lives. But this is so it tends to be skewed quite heavily um, against people who are often very vulnerable or or in the in what we might call the developing world and over years of of working in sort of studying humanitarianism um it it became apparent that there was this real drive towards data being the the savior of of everything but it was also while there was lots of sort of uh, um noise about how how good this was going to be there was also this sort of underlying current that actually Maybe there's some problems with this. Maybe this is some sort of, and people started using words like data colonialism and, and this sort of thing. But for me as a, as a geographer, where this really sort of always came to to a head was when we were talking about mapping, because this data tends to end up being sort of brought into, into maps in order to share it around. Um, and we never really questioned maps. So while I was attending lots of talks and conferences where people would talk about humanitarian data, and there might be questions about it, rarely was I finding that people were critiquing the mapping of that data and and how that was affecting the humanitarian and, and development um, sort of sector. Um, and so so this book sort of came about because it, it felt like there needed to be a bit more of an explicit conversation about the relationship between moments of acute crisis where we we start generating huge amounts of data sort of with the intention of of serving people and helping people but actually there are still questions to be raised about the maps and the data that are being produced in those moments um, and so this this book was a great opportunity to bring together a, a whole Uh, range of scholars who work on on those subjects and who've worked in the field but also from a theoretical stance and to get get them to really critique and challenge this idea that in moments of of absolute crisis that if we throw enough data at it then everything's going to be better Um, and what this book also does is is it manages to take a little bit of a a longer look at things Um, I think one of the real dangers of of the lack of critique was that because crises tend to start and then technically finish or at least uh, disappear from the public consciousness we sort of don't look at that long tail of what happens in relation to data and changing society after a moment of crisis and that's often where um problems around the datification of people in moments of crisis are actually played out so the crisis itself might be um, I don't want to use the word solved but you know remedied by data in that moment but the long-term effects of those uh, that collection of data the presentation of that data the mappings that come out of it that's something that's less researched less viewed and less spoken about, I think, and, and hopefully this book addresses some of those uh, issues.
1: Well, we're certainly going to come to some of those issues in a moment, but I'd like to just pick up on um, your mentioning of the of the types of individuals who contributed to the book, because it is quite a diverse um, authorship involved. So could you just explain to listeners a little bit about the, the types and, and the fields of the scholars who contributed to the volume?
0: Yeah, I mean it. It is a very eclectic book. I mean, the the front cover suggests it's uh, that it's a geography book, but, um, but I, I guess it's not really. Um, I mean, we there's there's economists. We have uh, people who work with NGOs. We've got people from humanitarian sector. We've got academics. Um, you know, there's a, a whole range of of different um, disciplines, but also many many of the the writers are people who have actually worked. In the field, whether that's in Russia, looking at how participation in mapping can help um, tackle forest fires; whether it's in Uganda, working on mapping um, refugee camps uh, for you know disease prevent uh, disease outbreak prevention, or or to ensure people have access to water; whether it's people who have been activists in the Mediterranean, where um, they're working on the the data around migrant crossings. So. That, these are, these are academics, but they're academics who have worked with this data um, with, through NGOs or through charities and, um, and through other organizations. So, so there's a whole sort of extra layer to the book where we actually get to, to experience through the eyes of people who have been working on the ground, as well as uh, bringing in a lot of the sort of theoretical ideas around data and mapping.
1: And I think it's a really excellent example of how actually thinking about data in the digital world almost helps to intersect across what are quite disparate, often feeling fields. Um, And I think it it does that very, very successfully to show the links and the ways in which this brings together, um, as you say, economists, uh, practitioners and academics. So I'd like to just kind of start to think about the actual shape of the volume and could i ask you to to primarily just outline for listeners the general structure and progression of the book because although you know we do have these very very different approaches it does have um quite a nice uh, pace to it shall we say
0: um yeah i'm i'm glad you think it has a good pace um so yeah i mean it, there there's quite disparate stories in the book i mean each chapter tells its own story of, of some moment of crisis and how how data has been used or misused in those moments to to either solve a situation or to push a political agenda depending on on that particular crisis but the the book itself sort of takes us um i guess through a starts with a a sort of theoretical underpinnings around what representation through mapping and data can really mean um, and sort of gives us that that kind of uh, basis of understanding that. And it, that's a, a topic that has been written about quite extensively, um, but perhaps not quite so from this, this humanitarian perspective specifically. And then the book starts to take us through a number of case studies looking both at participatory mapping projects and, and how communities and individuals uh, attempt to use mapping um, to tell their own narratives. And then it sort of takes us into the the challenges of that, because actually participation is is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's it's an incredibly difficult thing to get right, and and it's it's not something that actually solves everything in in itself. Um, so then we start sort of moving from there into how those sort of participatory projects can be um, misconstrued or, or misused. And, and that then sort of leads us into some of the purposeful manipulation around mapping data that happens, particularly when we look at um, things that are happening in the Mediterranean in terms of um, the the mapping and, and datification of migrants, um, the way that sort of drones and things are then employed to, to map people beyond their consent, um, and how this sort of shapes our understanding of, of everything from climate change to to our own sort of everyday existence um and then towards the end of the book sort of wanted to try and sort of finish on a on a, a slightly happier note i guess because there is a risk of it all being so sort of um overwhelmingly challenging that we wonder how to move move on, but the, as we move towards the end of the book, we start to look at some examples of participatory mapping that that have really worked. We start to look at that that case study from Uganda, where um, refugees on the ground are mapping their own existence, um, and it sort of towards the end, I hope, offers some semblance of hope that actually this this isn't a rejection of all data this isn't a rejection of all mapping this isn't a rejection of all the good that is done through humanitarian work but it's rather the the book then sort of leaves us with a sense that there's good stuff happening but a lot of it needs to be better here's some a few ideas about where it's going wrong and a few ideas about where it could be better and sort of hopefully leaves the reader with a a sense that uh, all is not lost um, and there are some some lessons that are in the book that that we can take forwards.
1: Well, before we come to that much more positive um, kind of ending to the to the volume, I'd like to to come back to this this point that you raised, which is really about this idea of the dark side of data, um, which is a phrase that I th- always think is is really kind of encapsulates this phenomenon. So. I was wondering if, for those who are unfamiliar perhaps with digital technologies or this area of study more generally, whether you could explain what some of the issues are that are posed by data and digital technologies when it actually comes to mapping and humanitarianism and and really, I guess, just society and politics more generally.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing to understand about about data generally is um, it's a pretty slippery thing. Um, we, We tend to think of data as being... Um, very uh, sort of solid and, and that once a piece of data is collected, then, it, then it's sort of almost um, unquestionable. Um, and we have to be very careful, I think, when we're talking about this because it's easy to also slip into an argument that sounds like you're dismissing science or that you're dismissing data um, in its entirety. And I certainly don't want to do that. I, I think those narratives have been growing in a way that's incredibly unhelpful but they're growing for the same reasons that that the issues that data creates also um, exist so um, so let me let me sort of try and put that into some concrete sort of examples or or ideas about why data is so slippery Um, for me I think we can we can sort of divide the issues around digitally collected data into three sort of key areas and um, there's no part of the book that explicitly sort of lays these three out, but they are threaded all the way through every every chapter in there. And it always comes back to um, this idea of, of what we might call dark data, uh, what's often known as data positivism and uh, the, the idea of data washing. So dark data um, is just data that's not collected uh in sort of simple terms and while we might sort of think well that's that's a relatively easy one to solve we just collect more data and and that that solves things and certainly that's a narrative that we can just collect more and that will solve everything is a narrative that's put around by big tech. It's a narrative that was um, very much being pushed by the sort of big data agendas. And, and, you know, places like the United Nations Global Pulse Initiative were certainly sort of pushing the idea that if we collect enough data, there will no longer be development issues. There will no longer be humanitarian crises. But this sort of misses the point, really, of what dark data is actually about, because it's it's, it's impossible to collect everything There's always gonna be dark data. There's always gonna be things that are missing. Um, Some of that sort of makes sense because we don't really collect data about children in the same way we do adults, for example, because often the the tools that we're collecting data through aren't aren't available to to children. But there's also great swathes of the population that have no access to providing data in the way that we might need it for things. But even if we put all of that to one side and say, well, okay, we we can access every every human being and we can access every, every piece of data they've got, there's still this sort of epistemological and ideological assumptions that means that there's certain data we assume we don't need, so we don't bother collecting. So even if we had all the data in the world, we would still miss out bits of it just because we feel like we don't need it. Um, I mean, great examples of that is just how much um, medical research has been done o- over the you know the decades where women are excluded from trials. And in some cases there's lots of good medical reasons related to pregnancy where women are excluded, but this also leads to a skewed understanding of the human body or technologies that are tested on certain demographics but not others. and then we find that actually um, seat belts, and things are more deadly for certain groups of people than they are for uh, the sort of demographic that they're normally tested on. So so even when we've got access to to every piece of data that we could possibly want, we're always going to have dark data and miss things out. And so that's, that's sort of problem number one when it comes to data. The second problem is, is very closely linked, and that's this idea of data positivism. Um, and that's about what we then do with the data that we've that we've captured. So we can't present all of the data that we capture, even if we avoided all of the dark data issues. I don't know, you you can't present everything. Um, So we have to choose what story we're going to be telling with the data that we've got. And as we turn it into data visualization or maps as I'm particularly interested in, you have to make choices about what becomes included and what's not included. And you start prioritizing some types of data over other datas. You start seeing some data as being very legitimate and some as less so. Um, And that can be based upon assumptions about where the data's come from, who's generated that data, you know, the reliability of that data because of those factors. But that means that this data starts to get sort of cleaned and churned by the person creating the outputs with the data and you you end up having to create a simplified version of existence now those simplified versions of existence are incredibly useful for lots and lots of things but we have to be clear that they are not ever going to be full representations of everybody's reality it doesn't mean they're not useful for some things but it means that they can't possibly include the narrative of everybody and the danger is that they as they get cleaner and cleaner and, and become a, a more compelling story it's generally speaking the most vulnerable people and the people who perhaps need to be represented the most who are most often the ones that get moved um, off of that or, or marginalized or, or occluded from um, that representation that visualization or, or that mapping Um, And then that that third issue is is closely linked to those, this idea of data washing. Um, You know, even if you've managed to collect all the data, which we've already said is impossible, even if you somehow manage to avoid data positivism as you sort of clean and prepare your data for for some kind of presentation, um, even if that was all possible, this idea of data washing means that you can't really... Move yourself to being fully objective as you start to present that data. So, um, you know, you imagine you, you've collected all of this data, and it doesn't really show the story that you wanted, or perhaps it even shows the opposite of what you thought was going to happen. Um, you know, you could tweak that data so it looks a bit different and does show the story. Well, that feels a bit disingenuous, so we're perhaps less likely to do that. What people are more likely to do is to skip that diagram or skip that piece of information and move to something closer to to the original hypothesis. Um, And, you know, of course that happens. We're constrained by the length of the articles we write. We're constrained by the, the length of the research projects we're doing financially, whatever. So we end up sort of having to skip some things. And our human nature means that we often end up skipping the bits that don't really agree with us not because we're being disingenuous not because we're trying to lie but because we're trying to tell a story and when we're trying to tell a story it's much easier to tell a story where all the parts fit together nicely and tell that narrative of course the other option is we just don't share anything at all Uh, and then you know we've washed that data out so so entirely it's almost as if it never happened Um, now that sounds like I'm being sort of very unfair on on people who work with data and mapping, because these people are are really trying to avoid all three of these things. They are trying to collect the data that's needed. Of course they are. They're trying to avoid data positivism. Of course they are. And participatory projects sort of do help with this. And they're trying to avoid data washing. They're trying to avoid only presenting what fits and conforms to pre-held consumptions. But it's not easy. We're all fallible, and it's not easy to get that right. And it's not easy to get that right when we've got all the time in the world. It's particularly difficult to get that right when we're doing things, um, as we talk about in the book, in moments of crisis when we're rushed, when we're collecting quickly, when we're presenting quickly, and of course those situations require a a, a rapid response. But it. Increases the the chances of those data issues becoming something that, in many cases, and many of the examples in the book, is actually um, a, a deadly outcome for individuals um, while they're at their most vulnerable.
1: Well, let's move then to actually talk about some of these situations and some of the slippery data um, in practice. So the first two chapters of the book really focus on this more theoretical side, as you've pointed out. So they, they have this focus on, on two really important developments in cartography. So this is critical cartography and participatory mapping, which you've, you've already mentioned quite a few times. So do you think you could give listeners um, an overview of, of these approaches and their significance for mapping in society?
0: yeah um so i think part- let's start with a uh, participatory mapping because uh, um i think that that's where it feels like all the answers are um but then critical cartography sort of comes in and, and reminds us why they they aren't so i mean um uh participatory mapping has has been around for for quite some time it sort of rose to prominence um i guess in sort of the, the 1980s 1990s um out of uh changes in the way that we understood that development work should be done and and i mean that in, in terms of sort of uh, international development work that that's being carried out by large ngos um and the it came from this notion that actually Imposing knowledge and imposing ideas from an outside perspective isn't a, a a good model of development. It isn't a a model of development that actually um works for people but is one that's that's rather exploitative so so the idea of, of more participatory mapping and more participatory development models was that the local community would be more included within their decision making processes and a lot of that related to actually trying to understand how people understood their own geographies and their their own world around them and and creating their own maps of their communities and community needs was seen as being a a a real key part to to unlocking what true international development could look like Um, as we've sort of moved sort of past there there's there's a great deal of critiques around around that and um there's huge bodies of literature around the the issues of participation and one of the main issues at that time was of course that the the participatory model was still something being imposed from the outside so you still had facilitators going in and requesting that people were participants as we sort of fast forward Sort of post two thousand and five, when you you had things like Google Earth and Google Maps started to become prominent um, pieces of of software, and then sort of things like OpenStreetMap, as they they also became more prominent in the late two thousands. What you what you started to see was much more access to tools that were seen and and still are seen as being quite participatory where we have the ability to make our own maps of what what happens in our communities and not just make maps but also to to collect our own data to to map that data to to share photographs videos and and to do some actually really quite fantastic representations of our own lived experience and our own lived um, lives and and representations of ourselves. And in many ways, I I don't like critiquing all of that because there is lots and lots good that happens there. there. There's a lot of good participatory mapping projects out there and the book does talk about some of those as well. But when we start thinking about critical cartography we realise that there's still some some issues there. So I mean critical cartography itself is just, you know, really a it's a it's a way of exploring what maps do in relation to power. Um and how maps are are typically you know skew their their favour towards um what are already dominant groups. And and this becomes problematic even when we're working with participatory mapping projects and participatory data projects because the whole concept of mapping is one that's very embedded it's very set in stone We maps look a certain way and maps that don't look that way are generally excluded um, in that way that i was talking about where we um, sort of exclude some Data because it doesn't conform. Maps that don't conform can be excluded wholesale um, without sort of thinking very carefully about how to include them. So even a participatory mapping project is is always hemmed in by design choices, and those design choices on maps generally can be traced back to early mappings which were generally colonial in nature. So the way in which something is labelled, the way in which a choice to leave this kind of um, landscape feature on a map or to leave that one off of a map, the way that a legend works, the way that north is designed to point upwards, the way that the the projection of the map distorts the shape and and size of territories and, and land masses, the way that we conceptualize borders. All of these things and, and many, many more can be quite challenged by other communities that that perhaps don't subscribe to a um, a very Western um, mapping sort of uh, uh, um, styling. But mapping them in another way, which is which is doable in lots of ways and lots of different kinds of visualizations, there's wonderful sort of books and research around this. But those, that data then never gets included elsewhere because it doesn't conform to that dominant group's thinking about what a map should look like, and so it's dismissed. And so we've still got this challenge of when we're doing participatory work, when we're asking other people, or other people are putting forward their own um, data, their own ideas, their own theories about their existence and what they need and what they want and what life looks like, if that doesn't conform to the dominant narrative, then those ideas are dismissed. So participatory mapping can do a great deal. And certainly, I think it does a lot in that moment that it's being done. But critical cartography reminds us that even the most participatory mapping project is always hemmed in by um, what's sometimes called the, the ideal of cartography, that it conforms to this set of of tools and narratives. And if you're outside of those, it's not seen as so legitimate.
1: And I think that links quite nicely to two other, in, in many respects, they, they appear quite different concepts, but I think there's, there's definitely connections to be made here. And these are um, ones that recur throughout the volume and these are surveillance and surveillance capitalism. Um, And we see these perhaps most clearly, I suppose, in chapter four, which addresses the use of drones in the humanitarian sector. But they're they're really concepts that are visible throughout um, the volume, more generally speaking. So could you perhaps explain to listeners what these terms mean in the context um, of mapping and humanitarianism and why they're so central to this kind of critical thinking about mapping?
0: Yeah, to me um and and to the, the other scholars in the book and 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 many others um mapping is all about surveillance it is the ultimate form of surveillance in in many respects we you know right back to the earliest maps 3000 bc the reason that maps were created was to Control a population was to document that population was to to know what a population is doing, where they are, and um, whether that's then to tax them or to to coerce them or to stop them moving from one place to another. It's the ultimate aim of of mapping um, historically. And there's also this sort of this link between what's been termed the the cartographic gaze, this idea that the mapper is always Position to some sort of divine being looking down upon people. So, you know, we we have, you know, maps are always from this perspective of being above and looking down, and and that very much reflects a lot of um, sort of thinking about uh, the, the way that society is structured and also um, structures within religion, and it places the cartographer in this incredibly powerful view. And those of us who are then being mapped are sort of under this surveillance gaze. And and this becomes increasingly obvious when we start thinking about mapping with satellites, when we start thinking about mapping with drones, when we start thinking about mapping with these actual technologies that are physically above us. And we you know almost can see them above us looking down on us, but we can't escape this gaze. But what that does is it also sort of creates this sense that we're we're going to be stuck in whatever situation that gaze puts us in. So I mean, I've I've seen it sort of described that being mapped in this way is like being sort of held in the the eyes of Medusa that you're you're held in in stone for a moment because wherever you are at that moment in time, whatever you're doing at that moment in time, the moment that map is made, that that lasts forever. That's that's the snapshot whether you're doing what you wanted to be or not being or at that time. And we've seen this This is becoming increasingly problematic. Um, And we talk about this this idea of surveillance capitalism where it's no longer just about surveilling for control. It moves to this idea of surveilling um, for the commodification of data. So we're no longer interested in just creating a map in order to to tax people or control people, we're now interested in, in mapping people's very existence for profit making. Um, and you might think, well, you know, how how do people make profits from making maps in that way, or or datafying sort of the the maps of people and uh, creating data? Well, it yes, there's that huge swathe of stuff that that Google do with with advertising that's deeply linked into their mapping. But there's also, you know, a whole industry around um, border control and migration control. And this is a multi-billion dollar industry that that thrives on the collection of data about people and their movements. And without that data, actually, that that industry can't thrive. So there's multi-billion pound industries that are built up around collecting our data. And this is increasingly done through techniques that are borrowed from from mapping techniques um, as we employ more things like drones and satellites to to document people's existence so yeah I, I think actually um, the relationship between surveillance and and mapping is becoming ever more important and those two theoretical ideas not that they've ever been fully, separate, but are are ever more overlapping and and ever more need to borrow from each other to understand uh, the the ramifications of what's happening in the world in relation to mapping.
1: Well, let's move then to talk about maybe some of those groups who are perhaps most vulnerable to some of the statification. Um, And we really see this in chapters five and six of the volume, which deal with Europe's migration and refugee crisis. And something that's really resounding throughout these chapters is the question of really who's benefiting from the increase in data. And you've already touched upon this um, a little bit at the start of our interview. Um, So, you know, who's benefiting from the increase in data and statistics and all of the data analytics that we now have at our fingertips? So could you perhaps explain why data-driven politics is potentially harmful to especially refugees, but also, you know, the wider society of which we all form a part yeah,
0: I, let, let's start with that example, I think, um, of, of migrants um, in the Mediterranean and and then hopefully can sort of link that to, to the wider world. I think one sort of issue here is it's, it's very easy to accidentally... Um, push this to being an issue of, of other people who are already marginalised and, and to talk about them as if it's their problem. And, and it's very much not. Um, it is very much an issue that that affects all of us um, in in many, many different ways. But a, a, a road in to help us understand it is to look at the, the Mediterranean as a, as a case study. Um, and. I mean, the, since the formation of the European Union, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm a fan of the EU, but but since the the formation of the European Union, that northern coastline or n- north of the, the Mediterranean Sea has become increasingly fortified um, as Europe collectively sort of attempts to stop migration in into the uh, into the block, um, and a lot of that it's not a border wall, it's not a a Trump style, you know, big fence, it's a a barrier that's created via data. And it's an incredibly sophisticated barrier that's created via data. Um, And it's sophisticated for two reasons. It's partly sophisticated in what it does collect in terms of data. But it's also, um, and perhaps sophisticated is, is the wrong word, but it's also sophisticated in what it purposely doesn't collect in terms of data so you know the the southern borders of of the european union are you know heavily policed by drones by um, border agencies by by huge amounts of data-driven exercises and this often presents itself in terms of if you arrive at that border as a someone who's um, an irregular Migrant, you will find yourself subjected to collecting of your biometric information, of having to give huge amounts of detail as to your, your life and, and who you are. And, and this is then entered into databases and shared across the, the European Union and, and beyond. You know, there's, there's this real sense that if you reach Europe that way, that your life is no longer your own. So it, it creates this sort of de facto um, border wall of of having to have the right data to be able to get past it. And once that data is collected, it's then used for the rest potentially of your life to track every one of your movements, to see where you move with inside the European Union, to see whether you're... Um, refugee status should be accepted or not. So this data that you provide at that moment then becomes something that, that massively controls your entire existence. And the European Union has huge amounts of data about this, huge, huge amounts of data, and they're very sophisticated in collecting this. Um, and... Uh, but it, it also has... A counter-narrative that is that actually the the European Union also has a, a significant lack of data. There are no official figures of how many people have drowned on the way to the south coast of the European Union. There's no official figures of how many people have gone missing. There's no official figures on who those people were, of where they were coming from, whether they were men, women, children, whether they were what the European Union would call legitimate or illegitimate uh, refugees. There's no comprehensive system in place to document migrant fatalities um, as they try to reach the European Union. So on one hand, we can be incredibly sophisticated and turn these these people into to absolutely fundamental um, points of data where they exist as nothing but data. But we can also choose not to. And when we choose not to, it's because we're choosing to ignore their deaths. Um, the, the International Organization for Migration estimates that around 19,000 people in the last decade have drowned or gone missing on their way to Europe. But it's only an estimate. It's based upon uh, eyewitnesses' accounts and reports from search and rescue NGOs. But there's no official data. Um, but what the data does, the bits that the European Union does collect, the having this masses of data around the migrants who do make it to the European Union. This allows them to, firstly, provide a sort of convenient backdrop that legitimizes the increased militarization of Europe's border, so in increasing the amount of drones and data collection that's happening on that border, because they can say X number have arrived, um, and they can say that under the pre- pretext of, of preventing further further deaths and suffering, but they can never tell us what that those deaths and suffering look like. Um, but they can also then use that data to push political agendas, whether that is Shifting the the political narrative to something that's anti asylum seeker, anti refugee, in order to push other agendas, um, but then by not collecting the data who, of of those people who drown, there we can hide entirely that sophisticated mapping and tracking technologies aren't used, that we have no interest in, that that we don't care about saving people's lives, that we don't care for rescuing people who are lost at sea. So the the same the desire to collect certain sets of data and to ignore other sets of data play the same narrative of both, A, we, we, we are heroes, look how many people have come, but also the migrant is a problem, and also allows us to ignore uh, those who are drowned, missing, um, and uh, presumed deceased. Now, that example is, I imagine, uh, you know, abhorrent to to your listeners, but it also feels distant for most of us. It, it's something that happens out of sight, and it, it's partly out of sight because we don't collect that data about it. So there aren't, you know, huge numbers of reports coming out. It's not on front pages and, and lots of other things because we don't actually know the numbers of people dying. But it's, it's not as distant as it should, uh, as it feels, because actually those, those very decisions that are being made in the, the Mediterranean about which data to collect and which people to ignore are exactly the same kind of decisions that are made daily about our lives in lots and lots of other contexts. So we can choose how we collect data related to uh, benefits, for example. We can choose how we collect data in relation to, um, as we saw this summer, exam results. Um, we can choose the way that data is collected. We can choose then how that data is used. Comparing deaths in the, in the Mediterranean to, to the A-level fiasco feels a little bit frivolous in some ways, but it's the same mechanisms that are driving both of those situations. And and I know you, you want to touch a little bit on, on how this relates to, to COVID as well and, and what's happening there. Of course, this is an incredibly data-driven moment of existence. And I think for a lot of us who have never before experienced on a day-to-day basis the way that the collection and um, cleaning of data actually affects daily life, For many of us who haven't really felt that before, we're starting to feel it now in our daily life, because now we are being subjected to um, rules and regulations about our lived experience, most of which we're quite equipped to deal with, um, but that are being algorithmically driven.
1: So many of these issues are then picked up again in a slightly different context in chapter seven, which talks about mapping crisis in the Anthropocene and the growing concerns for climate migration. So a very um, particular type of migration there. Could you tell us a little bit about how climate migration is being mapped? So some of the actual approaches being taken and really some of the issues that are being caused by these same approaches?
0: Uh, yeah I mean I, I think this this again links us towards something that for many of us perhaps feels quite distant but actually is is becoming uh, something something that's increasingly close um, some people are not too keen on the the phrase Anthropocene I, I'm I'm very subscribed to it myself um, this is this is the the notion that we've we've moved to a new ecological era in which human activity is, is the dominant driving force behind climatic change, um, to put it into a, an incredibly simplified version of of what the Anthropocene is, um, and as we as we sort of see increases in in climatic change around the world. We are going to see, and we already are seeing, extreme um, pressures on resources in places where either there, there had previously been pressures and places where there previously weren't pressures. Um, I mean, for example, we look at California this summer. um the, the largest wildfires that california's ever had have been in the last 3 years and they've been getting bigger and bigger and we're going to see more of that um same in the amazon basin um which which has been burning this year it was much more prominently in the news last year um as the amazon rainforest was burning but we're also seeing uh places that are more prone to flooding more regularly we're seeing places that are more flown to uh, prone to drought more regularly we're seeing Uh, places that perhaps were once quite fertile, now suffering uh, with great crop losses uh, and these sorts of things. Um, And all of these things are going to lead and already are leading to changes in migration. Um, But also, at the same time, these extra stresses on resources actually leads to an increase of border nationalisation. We, we see people wanting to control, or countries wanting to control their borders ever more tightly in moments where uh, crises are occurring. Um, and although there, there, of course, are many international laws and, and regulations around um, the, the free movement of refugees from war zones, from famines, this is not, um, this is not something that, that's always well enacted. And where it is enacted... Those migrants are again increasingly subjected to datafication. So whether you're fleeing conflict or, or famine or, or whatever it is, crossing an international border now results in in more data collection about you than than, than it ever has. And while that might seem sort of uh, something that that's uh, really not an issue or something that that could be very beneficial and and short term it certainly does have many benefits of ensuring that we you know know how many people require access to clean water, know how many people require access to shelter and housing. That that's important. But the way in which this data is collected and and who owns this data can can have some significant knock-on effects. And we've seen data being used about the the background and ethnicity of populations to, to fuel hatred and, and to, um, you know, genocide and, um, and the eradication of other populations or persecution of uh, certain populations. And when we, we live in a world where the narrative of the, of being a migrant is already one that puts you in a, a, societally, a position that's societally seen as lesser, when we add in the data that enables us to create narratives around that group of people, we're, we're adding more fuel to a fire. Um, and so I, th- I think the the increased amount of migration we're going to see, and we already are seeing, coupled with the increased datification of people as they cross borders, has this real potential and has already played out but uh, increasing potential to be an absolute catastrophic um, moment of marginalization and persecution of people as resource sharing becomes more more, uh, resource sharing becomes less uh, of a thing as national borders try and hold on to resources they've got and and people move around. And now that none of that is solved purely by changing how we collect data. There's, there's, there's deeper political and socioeconomic and social issues that are, that are embedded there. But the danger is that the data becomes a, a tool that's used to, to make that situation considerably worse rather than one to make it better. And it can be the very same people who are collecting it for better who accidentally let that data get used to for something that's not not as intended. And that's not to say that those people who are doing very good work, particularly in relation to supporting refugees, um, should stop their work. It's that we need to think about how we're working with that data to ensure the long term security for people, not just in that moment of crisis.
1: So after these very difficult and, and to be honest, harrowing chapters um, on, on the actual experiences of, of migrants, be it um, for political, socioeconomic or climate causes, the final chapters of the volume focus on on what you call fighting back. <laughs> um, and they, they look at the rise of, you know, citizen data scientists and these innovative approaches like hacktivism, which is I'm sure a word that many people are aware of now, and open data. And. Um, Could you explain how these methods, you know, from below, to use a a kind of a nice historical term there, help to rethink the datification of people? And and where do you see this resistance going in the future? You know, you've already mentioned um, the pandemic currently, but we have so many other crises which could potentially benefit um, from this resistance. Yeah,
0: I mean... (sighs) I'm never quite sure about whether I like the phrase "from below" personally, uh, and I know it's it's used an awful lot, but it, just in that description of being below, it's already decided where people are. But but I guess I guess it is it is the fight upwards. Um, yeah, there, we we've seen for a long time and, and increasingly, um, as I touched upon earlier, this these sort of Counter mapping, fighting back initiatives, the, these ideas that you could um, recreate your own existence by and through recreating the maps and data about yourself. So, in, this to me comes in, in two sort of forms. One, and I think we've touched upon it quite a lot already, is this idea that you just go out and you collect the data that makes sense to your community, to your cause, to your, and that data might be counter to the the narrative. It might be that the methodology of collecting the data is counter to the narrative. It might be that it's a type of data that's never been collected by the dominant narrative. But whatever it is, you go out and you make a, um, and I use you in the broadest sense, go out and make this active um, attempt to redress the balance through the collection of data that that tells the story from the other perspective, from another perspective, um, as required. The other side of that is is this more sort of hacktivism um, sort of side of things, where we take the data that's already there and we reimagine it. So we, we don't necessarily um, address the dark data in that situation, but we start to address that data washing and that data positivism by looking at the same data and seeing, actually, can we... Can we cut this a different way? What if I what if I slice the data in that direction? Does, or does it tell the opposite story, or does it tell the same story? Or because it's very easy to keep keep cutting data to get the story that we want, um, but it's also you know very often the case that we can recut the data when we've got access to it to to s- tell a more full story of what what's actually happening. Um, and I think the Mediterranean again is a good example there because. It's very difficult to analyze data that doesn't exist, but analyzing the notion that that data doesn't exist, looking at what data is missing, is the counter narrative. So we can start to sort of hack the data that's already there and we can start to feed more data into what's happening. There's dangers with this, of course. There's significant dangers, because where are we feeding this extra data into? And who are we actually challenging when we we recut this data. Um, if we're feeding our new data into the same places as the old data, we're potentially just further empowering um, the 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 owners of that data to, to use it against us. Um, if we're building another place to house that data, then perhaps it, it becomes less accessible to other people. And there's still that question of how do we present that data? Does it have to conform to a particular set of ideals in order for it to be seen as legitimate? So there's still there's still significant issues around this, but there there are lots and lots of opportunities where we can support people, provide the tools or just give the space because it doesn't always need someone from the outside. Sometimes it just needs the people from the outside to go away for long enough for people to create and and. Develop their own understanding of their their existence, that's built around their ideals, their mappings, their data, and their understanding of what is needed in society. It's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, and we there's there's more critiques of of projects than there are successes. I would argue, um, and that's perhaps very unfair because if if the the project itself is successful for that group of people then surely that's a success. But the, the problem with those successes is when they get um, used over and over again in other places where the, the success is no longer uh, perhaps there, but is masked by by some successes. So yes, uh, the book does end with, with some more hopeful stories. It does end with this idea that actually there are places of resistance. There are places to fight back. There are places where Communities are, and I'm, I'm not really a big fan of the word empowered, but I'm, I'm going to use it empowered to, to retell their own narratives through their own data and their own maps. But I think those last chapters still, and I, and I hope they do, they still point to the, the only way that any of that can work really well is if we spend all of our time saying, are we doing this well enough? Have we got this right? How could we do better? What have we missed? Who have we missed out? What have we forgotten? If we keep asking those questions, then we start moving towards something going going really well. As soon as we think we've got it right, that for me is the moment of alarm bells where we've almost certainly got it wrong.
1: And some of those questions that you just brought up, I actually think um, link quite nicely to something that I wanted to bring up, which is the the topic of rights. And this is something that's not perhaps explicitly brought to the fore in the volume, but it's it's really difficult to read the chapters here without thinking about how questions of rights are embedded into so many of these issues, uh, You know, such as climate migration, such as migration more generally, such as who has um, access to data, whose data um, is collected. So I was wondering if you could perhaps you know, spitball a few of the ways in which you think that you know rights are intersecting with some of the themes of the volume, and and perhaps how actually the the research here, although you know being on um, humanitarianism, you know specifically, might actually kind of expand um, to, to thinking and rethinking about the meaning and nature of rights for all in the digital age.
0: Yeah, I I think you're right that. The issue of rights is always is all the way through the through that text, and I, and I guess actually, we you know if you if you pulled back the layers of all of my research and writing and thinking, it all comes back to to rights, and there are some fundamental rights that are enshrined in things like international law, of course, uh, you know human rights and indigenous rights and uh, you know the environmental rights movements and things. Um, What's what's missing at the moment, and there have been attempts to address it, but there there isn't a good enough, a solid enough, a fully agreed upon, a a, a robust enough understanding of our rights in relation to data. Um, and a very it's very very unlikely that we ever will see something like that. Um, I think, um, you know, so. Uh, yeah, and then what do I mean about rights about our data? I mean, we have things like theoretical right to be forgotten. We have this theoretical right to access the data that people hold about us, certainly in the European Union um, at the moment anyway. Um, but what does that really mean? Well, partly those those two mechanisms. The first one, the right to be forgotten, is, is technologically impossible if not, um, you know, sort of, Uh, presenting other issues and and the the right to access of data is partly technologically an issue but also is is a real issue of of access and having the, the 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 time the capital the understanding to be able to do that so again both of those regulations are skewed towards certain demographics and other demographics who are perhaps uh less technologically proficient, who perhaps are, have less time, who have less finances, who have uh, less even understanding of the fact that even someone holds their data, well, th- those pieces of regulation have, have no meaning for those people because they're inaccessible to them. Um, so in, they do that thing of of looking like they solve a problem while actually only solving it for a few people and, and not really solving it at all. Um so where do we go from there? I, th- I think we probably do need to look at some some fundamental digital rights and what that is. And part of that is is about having to unpick between governments and corporations and that that um, symbiosis that exists when it comes to data between governments and corporations. Um, some of that is about having to unpick that surveillance capitalism and and how that works. I, I have to say I'm incredibly pessimistic about the idea of digital rights. I think it's something that we we should be pushing for, that we sh- should be enacting, but it's something that no government and no corporation has got any interest in enacting. Um, and while no government and no corporation has much interest in enacting those, we're not going to see them. And that leaves us with uh, this imbalance of data still, which means instead of waiting for someone to write some rights for us instead of waiting for that to become law we need to we need to look at other ways that we as individuals as NGOs as humanitarians as academics as citizens as as whatever can unpick and explore and understand the data that's being used about us and in our interests or against us and i think that's that's where the important work is at the moment is helping to equip people communities and and activists with those tools to look at data rather than hoping for some kind of digital rights which i fear is yes like i say is not going to be forthcoming and is likely to be a rather impotent Um, set of rights even if it was uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I think it's sort of gone off on a tangent about no, no about absolutely. Right. it's it's an
1: incredibly difficult question, um but one that I feel that you know everyone from the academy to to the public, from politicians to artists, you know everyone's really trying to struggle with this idea of what it means um to be part of the digital age and what rights really mean. so um i, I it's it's not an easy question. I don't think anyone has any easy answers If they did, we would probably be in a much more beneficial <laughs> and positive situation.
0: that's that, that true, or we'd we'd be very rich because we'd be selling those answers. <laughs>
1: Oh it, it worries me who we might be selling them to. Well, exa- exactly. I think
0: that's what it always comes down to.
1: Um absolutely. Well then I you know, this this brings us to to something that I, I'm afraid is kind of unavoidable at this point if we're talking about um selling data and governments and responsibility and rights. Um and that's that's the the current COVID nineteen pandemic. And this really um is something that you talk about in the preface um to the book, um, and you explain how really the volume was actually published in in the midst of of the pandemic. Um um, and uh i suppose that, you know it's, it's very clear for, for most people who are listening to the interview how the pandemic clearly interacts you know with the contributions in the book but you actually state that the book has great a great deal possibly to teach us actually about the pandemic and how we're responding to this ongoing crisis Could you perhaps just outline some of the ways um in which the contributions um these chapters in the books actually do have resonance and perhaps effect for um, our responses to the pandemic
0: yeah um the the book was finished in about March. Um, it was with the publishers, it was doing its copy editing and that sort of thing and and then of course the the pandemic made its its way fully to the uk and it was apparent that it was was something that was was going to become this this huge global issue. it wasn't it would, it's too late that it was going to be contained and all of these things um and that, and there was talk about rewriting sort of large sections of the book to to link it very closely to to the pandemic um which was something that that we resisted which is which is why it's written up as this this proof instead um and that we resisted it because the lessons are actually already there in the book you know they don't i don't think they do need spelling out um by changing all the chapters to being about covid um and what, what do i mean by by that that there's there's lessons already in that book um well i alluded to earlier i think you know that things like migration and and being a refugee you know or or, or crossing the mediterranean or being in a in a you know in Haiti after the earthquake and and, and having uh, you know crisis mappers turn up and and turn your life into data which is sort of one of the first examples of of real crisis mapping happening uh, that's sort of quite well, widely known you know being in those situations is incredibly alien to a lot of us this idea that data is problematic in our daily lives is quite alien to a lot of us and we don't think about it very often. It it's not something that we're we're acutely or daily aware of for most people. Um, because we're for, for many of us, we're you know incredibly lucky to live lives where we don't have to think about this very often. What the pandemic has done is is brought this to the doorstep of essentially the whole world. Where suddenly the whole world has this sort of pressing feeling that, oh, someone's collecting data about this and telling me what to do. Now, I'm, I'm a big believer in science, so I'm I'm quite happy with people collecting data about the pandemic. I'm very happy to believe the scientists when they're saying that this means X and that these results should should do. But we've also seen politicians who I'm always less inclined to believe who use exactly the same data to try and spin another narrative. Um, and the, the waters have become muddied by this misuse of data for political ends, which has has seen us, you know, I mean, divided almost between the, those who believe everything that needs to be done to stop coronavirus and those who believe that nothing needs to be done to stop coronavirus. And the, the two see very little eye to eye at all. Um, and this has made it quite stark for us that hold on a second, this this data is dangerous. It's not necessarily dangerous because the data is wrong. The data's I've got, you know, there's questions about the data. Who is missing from it? If we're not got a sensible track and trace, who's not included? When we're thinking about, uh, you know, how to use this data and, and things, you know, e- even the scientists, their recommendations are often something that that very much privileges the middle classes who are able to work from home. But, but disadvantages people who are working in, in jobs where they're perhaps already more vulnerable and can't work from home. So we, even when we follow the science fully, we see that it recreates the the um, divisions in society. Um, but then we also are quite starkly seeing the data being purposefully and, and willfully used to tell other narratives, whether that's by entire sort of conspiracy theorists or whether it's by politicians with a political agenda it it's really brought it home to a lot of us i think how much data is being used in behind the scenes to control our lives and to look after i shouldn't use the word control that feels very conspiracy theory but to to um to to I can't think of a better word now. I'm going to I'll stick with control, but I think there would
1: be a lot of people out there who might, who might agree with you, yeah. be, they, be they on one side or the other. It,
0: it, I feel like it's a slightly lesser word than, than control and it will come to me in about three hours time, I'm sure. Um, but th- this data is behind the scenes and it is being used. And even in those moments that we're seeing where it's being used for the absolute best of intentions, there's problems with it. And most of us have never experienced that before. But many, many, many of the world's most vulnerable people have experienced that, for some of them their entire lives. What this does then is if this gives us an opportunity to, to really globally, perhaps, start thinking about what we want from a society that is data-driven. Do we want people like Google and Facebook with such enormous amounts of power in relation to our data? Do we want our governments to have such enormous power in relation to our data? I don't mean we should push back against science. And I think the problem with this is in the middle of the pandemic, all of these conversations and questions about data can make it sound like you're questioning the science and and that's not the case. But it does bring us to a point where perhaps more of us can think about questioning that data rather than leaving some of the most vulnerable people whose data has always been used against them to fight their own fight. We're, we're now much more aware of it. We, we're perhaps able to bring more people into the um, into the mix of, of questioning and, and challenging and understanding the way that data affects our daily lives in a way that enables us to to sort of Actually, support those people who who are already marginalised by that data, and take, say, "Well, do you know what? Yeah, you're right. Uh, it, it's it's insignificant. My A-level results compared to drowning in the Mediterranean. But do you know what? We're both victims of an algorithm, and let's 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 have a think about how we both now address your your datafication through migration and my my poor A-level results because of an inbuilt bias against my school. We're, we're suffering from the same net issue. It's just a presenting itself in very different ways and just more people are now being uh, having that presented to them, I think. And that's what COVID is highlighting for me at the moment and why I think there's a lot to learn from this book because the book is all about people who have long experienced this in much more extreme circumstances than many of us are still experiencing it, but we can learn from that. We can learn from the, the ways that people pushed back. We can learn from the mistakes that were made. And we can learn from understanding how data has been at times purposefully misused by some of these organizations and governments.
1: Well, on that note, Doug, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on in this new pandemic um, era of the Anthropocene?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, uh, I'm I'm working on another book that also was started before uh, before the pandemic um, on post-apocalyptic politics, uh, where we're is very much more more Anthropocene and, and climate change than. Um, than it is pandemic, but of course the pandemic is there. And again, this is bringing together a selection of, of scholars and artists as well, actually, to consider what what politics looks like in um in a, a post-apocalyptic future, which um we called it a post-apocalyptic future, but now it feels like a, a post-apocalyptic now. So we, we might have to change the title. But it's still very much this this narrative around, you know, how. How do we understand what the apocalypse and the end of times might look like? And, and how does culture and media and data sort of play into our understandings of that? Um, and hopefully that will be out sort of fairly, fairly early in, in the new year. Um, and I think, although a very different topic in many ways, sort of marries quite nicely with, with this text too.
1: it sounds absolutely fascinating, and and perhaps we might be able to have you back on the show to talk about it um, in the near future. Thank you so much for being here today, Doug. The book is Mapping Crisis, Participation, Datification, and Humanitarianism in the Age of Digital Mapping. Doug, thank you for being on the show.
0: My pleasure. Thank you very much.